0: A decade ago, IBM's Watson became a Jeopardy! champion, beating the best human at the famous quiz game. Since then, the company's global chief AI officer says the company has come a long way, but AI still has yet very far to go. So what's fact from science fiction, and what can we be doing to stay safe in this brave new world? You're listening to Business Extra. I'm your host, Kelsey Warner, The National's Future Editor. Before we start, please do subscribe to Business Extra wherever you get your podcasts. I spoke today with Seth Dobrin, the Global Chief AI Officer at IBM. Here it is. So Seth, I'm speaking to you on the sidelines of GITEX, the region's biggest tech show every year. This place has robots seemingly coming out of its ears. Mercedes is showing off a mind-controlled concept car. There's virtual reality Everyone seems like they're promising an AI solution, including a Sharjah startup that has AI-powered laser hair removal, which is a little scary. So of what you've seen, what are you excited about in terms of what you're seeing at JITECS and uh, kind of what are some of the most promising technologies here and where's some of the substance?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, first of all, the most exciting thing is being here in person, right? The largest tech conference in, in the region. It's probably the largest conf- in-person conference in the world. Right now, given given where we are, so so this is fantastic. Just just being here, from what I'm excited about, I think we're starting to see a convergence of AI and cybersecurity, uh, where you know AI is really helping to empower cybersecurity. There's a big focus on on trust and responsible AI, uh, and which is which is really required for us to get widespread adoption of AI. So I think, and and then all the robotic stuff that you mentioned, right? That's just, that's super cool. Probably not gonna happen next year or the year after. Uh, And, uh, but yeah. But fun to see. But fun to see.
0: Fun to be among the people.
1: Fun to be among the people and dodging the robots because some (laughs) of them work better than others.
0: So the pandemic has been a proving ground for AI. We did see some robotic AI, you know, roving hospitals, mostly in the antibacterial interest. Um, In the past year, it's been used to accelerate the pace of vaccine research The application of distributed ledgers to securely deliver digital health passports. So some really kind of pragmatic use cases so far with AI, but we're still a bit far off from, say, like the sentient robot doctor. Uh, But what have you learned in the past couple of years about where we're at with AI and where we're headed?
1: Yeah, so I mean, over the course of the last decade, we've been talking about digital transformation, which you know, essentially is a buzzword for another buzzword, which is AI. Um, And and so, you know, over the course of 10 years, we've had a slow progression where one or two, you know, probably a dozen companies really, really transformed uh, up until COVID. And then you saw a dramatic acceleration where companies didn't, you know, wholesale transform, but they had no choice, but to start implementing AI solutions to start figuring out how do we interact digitally and virtually, um, and so that really accelerated what we, what we think about as, as digital transformation. You know, I think COVID has really, the pandemic has really helped us to accelerate our efforts in digital transformations. And, and you're right, right? The rapid pace of development of, you know, a half a dozen vaccines in a year, that's in less than a year and get them approved in a year. That's amazing. Not even incredible. That's just mind boggling. Uh, and that was all driven by AI and practical use of data. They mapped you know, the, the sequence of the virus in record time. They built, you know, identified where they need to build the, the antibodies against or the vaccines against. And it was just incredible and wouldn't have happened without actually the world coming together, right? We were a big part of that actually. When COVID hit, we had a big task force inside IBM that I was part of, and we actually brought supercomputers from around the world together and made them available for vaccine development, drug development, Research into the sequencing of the genome and understanding of the genome, and so it also brought communities together. And our competitors were part of that. So it brought you know, we all had a you know, we all had to come out of this. That so was kind of in, you know, it, it was very inspiring.
0: That's an interesting sort of defense of AI's use in the pandemic. I think there's been some sort of skepticism that it really did you know have have its time in the sun. It was, seemed like really like a practical solution in a lot of cases. Where do you think it's headed? Like if we were to have the pandemic a decade from now or two decades from now, what what sort of things would you hope AI would be useful for? I mean, certainly vaccine development was critical, so I'm not trying to undermine that. But but where where might we, we head?
1: I think there are there are two parts to that. So one is, if you look at—and let's just use the pandemic because it's a, something that everyone can get their head around. If you look at when cases were rising, um, all around the world, it was— Beyond painful to integrate and get a view of what was really going on in close to real time in the world. Even the WHO data we see that's weeks old. In the U.S., the CDC data is a week out of date as soon as you get it. Every local, every you know county or equivalent around the world has their own way of collecting data. It's impossible to integrate. I mean, I had fifty people that were scraping, trying to get all this data together for us. Uh, there were all these you know entities. As a, as a globe, we need some kind of unified monitoring and integration system uh, so that in 10 years or, you know, so that we could, we if we have it done right, we can prevent pandemics because we can more easily see them coming. Uh, and AI can help us do that, right?
0: So there are a few threads there that I wanna kind of pick apart. So you started out by saying that the global effort and sort of transparency around data and data sharing helped us accelerate vaccine development. On the other hand, you know, data was fragmented. It was tough to get a full picture. And then you also have the need for jurisdictions to really collaborate to, you know, have a unified approach to this thing that we would like to think of as sort of universal monitoring, which if you're paying attention to big tech right now, universal monitoring sounds a little scary. So not that you have all the answers, but in your view, how do we regulate this? How do we create a more globalized tech society in a safe way?
1: There's global monitoring of individuals, and then there's global monitoring of populations. So I think having information about populations, aggregated populations, about what's going on in a county in the US or in, in, you know, in Europe or a state or you know a place like the UAE in Dubai, having aggregated information about what's going on from a public health perspective is, is really important and being able to share that. I think, and, and you know, this is IBM stance as well. You know, your data is your data. Your personal data is your personal data. You know, and, and I think you need to. You know, let's take vaccine acknowledgement. Do you have a vaccine? You should have to say, "I want you to have my vaccine information or not." Now, whether or not there's consequences for not sharing it, that's up to the government. But you should have the right to you know, say, I want to share my personal information. That's my health information, right? That's my, some of my most private information. From a regulatory perspective, I absolutely, and, and IBM firmly believes there should be precision regulation. You know, we should be absolutely regulate things that you know, impact directly your health, your wealth, or your employment.
0: So there's been ongoing controversy at Facebook, other tech companies, but I'm skeptical that we're in the midst of a major tech lash, which is obviously what's often stated if you're paying attention on Twitter, or sort of these high-level U.S. Congress testimonies. But there seems to be very little in the way of kind of consequence at this point. Out in the real world, we're still largely subject to sharing our data in exchange for services like messaging or faster customer service, or just access to news and information freely. So billions of people rely on technology these days as basic infrastructure. Where do you think tech lash should rest? What should the public be concerned about? And what should we demand of companies if we are to actually engage in a tech lash?
1: Let me tell you how I approach this personally. I think some consumer tech companies are uh, monetizing individuals. And most individuals don't realize that that's happening to them. Uh, And GDPR was a good step to make that more relevant. But to your point, people feel like they need to participate on these platforms to participate in their social world. Um, You know, I have kids that are Gen Zs. Uh, And, you know, and I, of course, I always talk to them about this. I send them stuff about, you know, all the, you know, this is all your private data. It's all being shared. And they're like, yeah, okay, Um, And they keep doing what they're what they're doing. Uh, So I think it's it's a personal choice. Uh, but I also think that the where we are today, regulations that we're seeing coming up in, in Europe specifically, and even surprisingly in the US, are a response to public, in some cases, outrage about how, these, how tech companies are, are leveraging their data. Um, and, and that's important that we start moving forward because how companies, these companies leverage their data gets back to how they use AI in some cases, against them.
0: Right. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How, how can we ensure that there's AI for good? And how do we build in some transparency so consumers know if it's AI for good or AI for corporate profit?
1: Well, AI for corporate profit is not necessarily bad. That's true. As long as you're aware that that's what it's for and you've explicitly consented to it. Right? Again, back to my statement. Your data should be your data. You should be able to do it you as you wish, but it should be explicit. You know, there's ways to legally make it explicit that maybe aren't explicit to the average human being uh, who's not in the tech world.
0: Yeah, Apple's Tim Cook has talked about maybe like a nutrition label kind yeah. of comparison. Do, are you a subscriber to that? Well, idea? actually, I
1: think, I think they stole that from, from our research group. So one of our researchers actually developed the first tool to do that called Fact Sheets. Uh, and she always describes it as a nutritional label for AI. And so I'll have to tell her, I never heard Tim Cook say that, but I'll have to tell her that Tim Cook stole her, her analogy. But I think, you know, for we need to start with inside companies first. We can't even do a lot of these things inside companies. So we need to make sure that AI is transparent, meaning that it's open to inspection, that you know you understand how and why it's coming to a decision. It needs to be explainable to the nutritional label for AI. You need to understand how that AI came to a decision what data that AI used, what the lineage and provenance is of that data and the model, what bias existed in that in that model, what was done to correct that bias. Uh, and so you need to go through all those stuff. And then the model needs to be uh, fair, right? Get into that. So free and fair of bias of specific biases. We'll never get rid of every bias. That's uh, I, don't, I don't even think that's a task we want to try and tackle because we don't know what all the biases are and they change over time. In fact, if we use AI right, it can help us reduce or even eliminate bias because we can account for it algorithmically. And you know, we don't want you know, most of us don't want to have biases, but we do unintentionally. If we do algorithms right, we can eliminate that unintentional bias or, or reduce it. Uh, and then it needs to hold, you know, it needs to be robust, be able to hold up as we use AI more and more, it's gonna be more and more under attack. So we need to be able to protect it. And finally it needs to preserve privacy back to the initial conversation we had.
0: So Elon Musk said at the Recode conference earlier this month that after population collapse, which is an issue for a different podcast episode, AI safety is the biggest threat facing humanity this century. Musk takes a sort of rise of the robots, dangerous cognition kind of view. I would expect you to take probably a more realistic, uh, pragmatic view. But what does make AI dangerous? Why is this one of the biggest threats of this century? Should it continue to evolve unfettered?
1: We had a panel on this Uh, on Sunday here at JITACS on on the singularity. I think uh, the singularity is maybe 20, 30 years off at best. Um, uh, So so I'm not too worried about the rise of the robots in the near future. We do need to, and, and that's at best right? We do need to be mindful.
0: At best, it would be further away.
1: At, well, so so the quickest it would happen, I <laughs> okay. think, would be 20 Still or 30 years Still within our lifetimes. Still within our lifetimes, but I think we do need to keep an eye on it and and make sure that it's developed in a way. But, you know, my personal view and, and IBM's point of view is that AI should help augment human intelligence and help us reduce, you know, nearly infinite number of decisions down to something that a human mind can actually grasp and take, you know, a physician. Uh, so, you know, God forbid, I get cancer. Uh, There's publications coming out in cancer at a rate that a human being could not keep up with, let alone keep up with and practice medicine. And so being able to use AI to help my physician, in this case, reduce the options that I have down from infinite to five or six, and then not actually make the decision for her and I, but give her the best decisions for her and I to have a conversation about and figure out what is the right thing for me to do in this situation.
0: So the example you're using there is your doctor can't read an entire library, but AI can. And AI can be used to surface potential treatments that your doctor could then use her own judgment as to whether or not to recommend and to you the patient. Talk
1: to me about them and say here are the here, you know, the you know, the AI reduced infinite down to twenty. I went through these twenty, here are what I think is best for you. Let's talk about what the options are that you and your family want to do. Um, and you know, AI is really good at distilling down complex concepts into topics, right? It's called topic modeling. And so in fact, we were just talking about that this morning. How do you create, you know, identify from all the vast amount of literature, what are the topics that would be relevant to me in this situation?
0: IBM was critical to the Apollo program that got Americans to the moon in 1969. The computing power and hardware the company provided then was so important, both in space and also on planet Earth. But we've moved past that era and are now in a new one where space is being commercialized. We're talking about increasing internet connectivity back on the ground for tourism, potentially for Mars colonies someday. But what's your view of this century's space race? And does it have a role to play in our tech futures?
1: I guess first of all, you know, I was born the day before they landed on the moon, so it's. uh, So you were on planet Earth. I I, I was on planet Earth. Where were you the day they landed? landed. I was in uh, in Floral Park, New York, in uh, in the hospital, (laughs) being uh, being just born. Um, But you know, I think from the perspective of you know the space race for commercialized space, you know, I think just like anything else, I mean, take military technology, right? You know, what we take for granted today on our phones about geolocation, that came from the military. Uh, And you know it's back you know 20 30 years ago when this was being developed. There were probably people saying, why Why are we doing this, right? Why are we spending so much money on developing these technologies? And and you know events like that and efforts like that, which you can correlate to the space race, where you have billionaires or close to trillionaires spending billions of dollars on doing something that you know I'm never going to be able to afford a ticket on there in my lifetime. Why do I care? Well, there's technologies that will trickle down. Right. Just like, you know, you have a Mac there every year, a new Mac comes out with new technology, but it always costs the same. Right. And so technologies get cheaper as they get better and they trickle and they trickle down. Now, personally, do I think we should be investing in space when there's so many problems here on the ground? That's a whole nother conversation.
0: Right. So my curiosity really is, are we now problem-solving in space in a way that still applies back on Earth? It seems like the previous space race really was solving for real-world applications here. And it seems like with the billionaire space race, we're having a bit of a different conversation. I, I, I think
1: we're still solving for tech for, for problems here. I mean, you mentioned internet connectivity, right? Imagine we could connect sub-Saharan Africa, right, instantaneously, get in a, you know, get 100 satellites up, right? They're trying to do this with Starlink and, and all these others. We could connect parts of the even, you know, rural parts of, of America. I mean, America is huge, right? Not as big as Africa, but there's parts of the U.S. that have still have dial-up, right? <laughs> um, parts of China that still have don't have any internet connectivity, right? If you could leverage the technology they're building for the billionaire space race and connect the world, that's hugely advantageous to help underserved populations become served and become part of the digital economy, and it raises all of us.
0: This brings up an issue, and this is my last question, but um, in terms of access, AI is creating a real haves and have-nots class, and there's going to be a rising disparity between those who have technology and those who do not. Are you optimistic that we're able to scale in a way that is equitable and just?
1: I've been talking a lot over the course of last year uh, about human-centered AI. And and I think in order for AI to truly add value to companies and governments and societies in general, we need to start from the human. What is the problem we're trying to solve? Who are we trying to solve it? Why are we trying to solve it in the first place? And, 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 and how is it going to be used? And, and I think if we start from the human and really understand what the problems are that we're trying to solve, it helps us get in the right direction. It helps us be fairer. Uh, It helps us actually develop AI that will be consumed. Uh, So lots of companies spend hundreds of millions, billions of dollars on building AI, on people, on equipment, and it never gets adopted because they were solving a problem that didn't exist. In fact, we have a whole AI strategy workshop that we do. And the first question you ask is, what's the problem you're trying to solve? You go through a series of, of, of exercises more than, you know, nine times out of 10, what they thought they want to solve is not the problem after an hour, we figured out they don't want, that they actually want to solve. And, and so take disparity aside, even just inside a company trying to use it to make money or save money, people don't really know what they want to do. Then you extrapolate it out to the world. And, you know, if you, if you don't have this human approach, this human focus, uh, we're not going to get where we need to be.
0: So AI, we're still trying to figure out what we want to do.
1: I, no, I think, if we have conversations with people, we know what we want to do. It's that we're not having conversations with the people that are going to be using or impacted by it.
0: Seth. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All that's left to do is thank our producers, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. And thank you for listening.